Merry Christmas. Thank you, Christy, and uh, choir, and Landon, and good morning. It's good to see you. Christmas is tomorrow. And in many ways, uh, it's Christmas every day of the year, but when we gather together on this day, and when we gather together as family, it seems to be a focal point of the meaning of it all. It takes on an enormity, at least for those of tender hearts and big souls. I've had a lot of Christmas songs stuck in my head, and now I have a few more this morning. What, what a beautiful number of songs. But one song I've had stuck in my head I bet you can't guess what it is. No, it's, it's not Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> Have yourself a merry little Christmas. I guess it's stuck in my head because it speaks of loved ones gathering. At least that's what it says to me. Family like friends, and friends like family. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Zooms in, gets up really close. In fact, this line is a favorite. Faithful friends who are dear to us gather near to us once more. I think we want closeness at Christmas. We want intimacy and meaning. We want light and life. The Gospel of John zooms out, not in, way out, beyond creation itself beyond our ability to imagine. And then it zooms back in, tighter, even closer, and more personal. And it is that larger-than-life perspective. We might call it an omniscient view that lets us see the greatness in the smallness. It gives us perspective. The oddest thing happened to me uh, this morning, early in the morning. I woke up and I couldn't get back to sleep. And something that I've thought about from time to time, I never know when it's going to pop into my head, but. My mind ran back to when I was five years old and we lived on John Muir Court in Modesto. And at that time, I was an only child and we had a little dog named Rover. I'm not making this up. <laughs> I won't start to uh, 
wander in my remembering. But I remember that our neighbor was a ring maker, a jewelry maker, um, a buyer of precious stones, cutter and buffer, and ring maker. And dad saved up money to buy every member of his family a ring. He bought himself a beautiful jade stone uh, in a silver setted uh, ring. And he bought my mother uh, an emerald in a specially designed. In fact, dad had a hand in designing the craftsmanship of the, of the setting itself. And then to my surprise, even such a young boy, and I do remember catching my mother suggesting that maybe I was too young to have such a ring. He bought me a gold ring, 14 karat gold. Mom had to explain what that little 14K stood for that was stamped on the inside. And it was onyx, a beautiful onyx stone, which is a very deep, rich, black stone. I cherish that. I, I have no words to fully express what that gift meant to me and how it grew in its meaning. I treasured that. And I had to ask permission to wear it. But I was so proud of it. One day I took it without asking. Uh, we were playing hobos, which were <laughs> drifters that often jumped trains and carried all their food in a little <laughs> neckerchief on the end of a stick. At least that's the way it was portrayed in the shows back then. And me and my buddy, we had a canteen, and we had our sticks, and there was beyond, just right next to the tracks, in fact, a large grapevine field, and in the middle, there was an area of undeveloped ground in which the grass grew very, very tall, and the hobos would actually hop off the trains and spend time in those. We'd been there before. It was a great adventure, um, maybe only an eighth of a mile or more away, but it seemed like a long way. And we made our way out there, and in the process, how, I don't remember. I remember thrashing around in the dirt. I lost my ring. I was so scared to tell my folks and they forgave it. I was young, maybe, maybe eight or nine at the time. Why do I mention that when I'm talking about perspective and the, that which is grand and that which is as small as a grain? Because I have about, oh, I'll say 30 years experience <laughs> since that time. We gain perspective on things. As much as they mean to us at that moment, they can't mean as much as they will as we gain perspective. And sometimes we can't have that perspective all in a moment. I couldn't number the times I've thought about losing that ring and wishing I had it again as a memento of my dad's love. My dad and I didn't have a very great relationship. 
But it was this morning that I remembered and I had a new perspective on what it meant to him to give me that ring against my mother's best wishes. For him to invest in that, to crown me with it, to express his love in it, even to forgive me for its loss. I don't know if we'll have all the perspective that John wants to give us here as we think about the advent, the arrival, the birth of Christ, the meaning of Christmas. But Christmas involves gift giving, and gifts belong to the heart of Christmas. No matter what we make of it, there's a gift somewhere in our conception of Christmas. A gift can say a lot of things. I've had some real stinkers. <laughs> but whatever a gift means, it means this. It means that you matter to someone. A gift means that you matter to me. When you give a gift, it means that that person matters to you. And Christmas means that you matter to God. That's a big deal. And if you ask how big, the answer is right here in the opening of John's Gospel. It's called the prologue. It puts the advent of Jesus, it puts Christmas into perspective. In fact, the prologue is the prequel to these words. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that all who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Keep that in mind as we read the prologue beginning with verse 1 of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is the Father, at the Father's side. He has made him known. If Christmas means you matter to God, then how much more that his gift is none other than his one and only son. That is really brought through to us in this passage. Unto us a child is born, we're told by Isaiah the prophet in chapter 9, verse 6. And John tells us, Unto us a child is born that we might be born to God. That's the true meaning of Christmas. It may sound preposterous to us to say that the creator entered into his creation, was born to us that we might be born to God. The meaning of it, not even science can give us only his revelation. Science can only give us the what of life, not the why. John gives us the why, the revelation to our questions of life's meaning of creation, of Christmas, of meaning. John reveals it. Listen to what he says, we could call it the prologue of his first letter. It echoes what he says in the opening of his gospel, but listen carefully. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, we have seen and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Joy, closeness, intimacy, the meaning of life, not groped for or stumbled after in the dark, but in the light. In fact, in verse 7, he says, if you walk in the light, 
And I walk in the light, we have fellowship one with the other because that light is the light of Jesus Christ. The light that was the life revealed to humankind. The life that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It is that light that John wants us to see in the word made flesh, in the word come into his own, that we might be born to God. This entire passage, all 18 of these majestic verses, pivot on one verse. Verse 12. Uh, Experts who study the structure of this prologue, these 18 verses, will tell you that it's uh, a form of chiasm. That is, it's kind of shaped like a V. Verses 1 through 10 run down this side, and then at the apex or at the very uh, pivot of the whole passage is verses 11 through 13, and right at the middle of that is verse 12, and then it goes back up to verse 18. And as you look down the different parts of them coming to the center, there's parallels. So that the opening verse, verse one, and the closing verse, verse 18, begin again with the closeness and intimacy of what was the word with God. But now, God has been made known. Well, the reason I mention that is that the very pivot point is that we should become children of God. Isn't that marvelous? When you look at the cosmic expanse of what John is saying, and that God, with the word, before creation, speaks it into creation, and the word is the agency of the universe, And then the word becomes flesh to dwell among us. That's the message. But what's the purpose? What's it all for? What's the goal? What's the objective that you should become a child of God? That's life that's new. And that's what we see in verses 11 through 13. Life born not of blood, nor by any human means, nor by any means, but God's will. God's will enacted through the agency of what is called the word, or the Greek word logos, probably the most important philosophical word at the time. And John says, it is that word which is the agency of God's will. And it is in him who was made flesh that we know new life. That we become children of God. Not of blood, not of flesh, not of your mom and your dad's good wishes, but of God. That's his life. That's better life than our life. 
In fact, the whole focus of the gospel in the 20th chapter, the 31st verse, John writes, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you've been looking at verse 12, it is that we should have life by virtue of his name, his authority. And his authority is set out in these two parts of this prologue, verses 1 through 10 that begins with in the beginning and verses 14 through 18 which begins with the word became flesh. And in these two chunks of what John is saying, there are references to the creation, to the beginning of the Bible, to the record of Genesis in the very first chapter when God created everything and then the apex of his creation was that he should create you and me in his own image. But it is with reference to that as background, as perspective, that now the advent of Jesus tells us, the birth of Jesus, Christmas tells us, is that God has something even greater in store. He wants to up his game with respect to you. He wants to draw you close. He wants to draw you into his own family. He wants to put his life into you. That's the extraordinary thing with reference to creation. In Jesus Christ, God trumps what he did at the inauguration of the universe. And then in verses 14 through 18, his authority is expressed in the sense of God's great redemptive event. In other words, Move from Genesis to Exodus, where God called his people out of slavery, led them in the wilderness. In fact, he took up his abode in their presence. It was called the tabernacle. It was a tent. It was a big pig tent made to specifications with which God had revealed. And the tribes were all situated, whenever they would camp, situated around the tent. No one was allowed to enter the holy of holies of that tent except Moses. It was called the tent of witness. And Moses would enter there and be able to have conference, intimate conference with God himself. That is exactly the illusion that John is making in verse 14 when he says, when it says the word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt, the word is literally pitched his tent among us. In other words, he tabernacled. It's the very same word that was used to translate the Hebrew of the Old Testament. The point is, John is telling us that in Jesus, God has trumped the level of intimacy when he formed his own people. In other words, he created the world, the universe, and people. But then he created a people for himself in the Exodus. 
With both of those things in reference and in view, John is saying Jesus is God's way of going deeper and further, or if you will, closer and more intimate. Because he wants you to be his child. So he's picturing here life new in verses 11 through 13, and life's beautiful in verses 1 through 11, and life close in verses 14 through 18, but all through Jesus. And that is why he says, in the name of Jesus because it's by virtue of what he has done at the will of God that we are able to have this kind of close relationship, intimate relationship, experience of new life. The very life that created the universe is the life that we access as his children. And that, I realize, at least even if I use my own life as a reference point, I remember how, how frightening it was to think of really believing fully in Jesus, saying, I want you to be my Savior. My Savior. And then, of course, you start to wrestle with, well, what, what, what do I have to give up? And how's that going to change my life? And what's it going to look like? And boy, then all the question marks and concerns and am I going to lose my friends? And what are certain people going to think of me? Because some people don't see Jesus the way I see Jesus. But let's look again at this life beautiful in verses 1 through 11. I mean, he's the creator. It says in verse 3, everything that was made was made by him, and nothing that was made was made without him. That means you and I are products of his creative genius. When you look at the creation, God said it was good, but when you look at it, and I don't know if you've seen it lately. I mean, we get our eyes on everything but the beauty of the tree, the flight of the bird, the movement of the clouds. Some of us are smart enough and wise enough to go for a hike or get outside the city. But sometimes in our temperature-controlled lives, we lose sight of how big this universe is, how beautiful it is without us apart from us. It's a reminder. The world is so fine-tuned, the universe is so fine-tuned that the more we learn about our world, the more wondrous it seems that the planet should sustain life at all. It requires the perf perfect properties of water and atmosphere and the essential proportions, the exact gravitational pull, the precise speed of the planet's rotation, the ideal distance from the sun, and a host of other necessities for physical life to exist. Change any one of these factors and we're toast, which is a nice way of saying we don't exist. 
In fact, did you read the recent report? And when I say recent, this is from October 25th. At least that's when it really hit the news. And maybe you're not familiar with CERN. It's the European Organization for Nuclear Research. It's that, that huge thing that they have that they run all of these nuclear experiments about in, and, and some of it's even been depicted in movies. They have physicists and engineers probing the fundamental structure of the universe at levels and to degrees that humankind has never been able to explore at this level before. And CERN scientists say that, listen to me, CERN scientists say that the universe should not exist. I encourage you to read about it. I encourage you to look it up. They've discovered a symmetry in nature and shouldn't be able, and, sh and that shouldn't be possible after the Big Bang. The universe wouldn't exist since particles and antiparticles annihilate each other upon contact. They posit that there needs to be an imbalance between them, but apparently there is no imbalance. In fact, says Dr. Christian Smora, sounds like a very sweet fellow to me, Dr. Smora is of Japan's Riken Institute, and this is what he said, and I quote, all of our observations find a complete symmetry between matter and antimatter, which is why the universe should not actually exist. And Smora asked, and I quote, what is the source? Isn't that interesting? He knows more about this than maybe all but a handful of other scientists on the cutting edge of this research released in October at the height and progress of the human race, and he wonders, and I don't say this smugly, but he wonders because he doesn't know why. What is the source? And yet Paul, writing almost 2,000 years ago in his letter to the Colossians, verse 16 and 17, reiterated what John has already said more than once in our reading this morning. By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. And then in verse 17, these words, he himself is before all things and all things are held together in him. There's your symmetry. There's your source. And it is the source of all that became flesh and dwelt among us. But when you behold the beauty of creation, why do we hesitate to turn our life over to him, to trust him? Sometimes we feel like we've hit rock bottom, 
But in light of what John's saying, as Tony Evans says, sometimes God lets us hit rock bottom so that you will know that he is the rock at the bottom. And he's not only the rock at the bottom, but he is the source of life. And when you trust your life to him, when you let go, you find him and his life is beautiful. And it will add beauty and bring beauty to the people in your life, to the crises in your families, to the struggles that you face, to the darkness that clouds our lives. We become light and we become life in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be his child. And sometimes we forget that in all the hustle and bustle of Christmas and all the buying and buying and buying. We don't hear the birds. We don't see the clouds move. We don't see the flowers sway. We don't realize that life is bigger than our own little problems. And yet he who is bigger than the universe loves you. Set it all in motion for you that you should be his child, that he should draw you close, that he should call you his own, that he should provide you the inner strength, the vision of a greater beauty and a greater life and a greater purpose a greater hope than we could ever muster or conceive. That's what he wants to unleash in your heart when you will believe on his name. I'm not speaking down to you. Every day I have to try and remember this. That's the walk of faith. That's the walk of the beautiful life the new life, the beautiful life, and also the life that is close. In verses 14 through 18, he became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. In fact, it says in verse 14, when it says full of grace and truth, that that is the essence of his glory, the glory that we behold. It's not the visual, visual features. By the way, a guy, I hadn't put this in my notes, but a guy that I follow on Twitter said, why is it we have to grow old? Does anybody ever get old? No, wait. Does anybody ever get hotter instead of just getting old? I'd love to be hotter than I was at 30, but I know I'm not. <laughs> but I mean, it just goes to show you how oriented we are to the outside. John is saying the character of the Word made flesh, of Jesus Christ, who he names first in verse 17. He says that's the character of our new life. Grace and truth. What is grace but gift? That's a very small definition and translation of grace, but it's gift. And what is a definition for truth? 
Isn't it something that you can really depend on? Isn't it something you can take to the bank? Isn't it something that you can believe in with all of your heart because it's not going to let you down? Isn't it a synonym for reality or what we say is really the truth? Boy, we're in short supply of truth in our world. And yet it's yours in Jesus Christ. But you've got to find it in the Word. And it will be tested and taxed and challenged from the outside. But it's yours in Jesus Christ. It's the life that's new. It's the life that's beautiful. It's the life that's close. I got really choked up when we sang the Revelation song this morning. Couldn't stop the tears from trickling down my face. You know, Christmas... It, it, it says to us, my life should be more meaningful. When someone dies that we love, that we care about, it says, my life should be more meaningful. Jesus spoke to that very issue. And in a way, he said, you'll find all that meaning in me. When he, who gave his life for us, and this is in the rest of the story, when he told his disciples that he was going to die when they got to Jerusalem, they were really shook. And then he told them something that he had never told them before. And it's in chapter 14 of the gospel 14 verses 1 through 6, and I'm just going to abbreviate what he told them. And I want you to hear the words of Jesus this morning. Whatever your challenge, because I know that some of you this morning are dealing with the recent death of people that you love very much, and this is going to be a hard Christmas because they aren't with you and you aren't with them. There can be a host of things, can't there? Don't let it rob you of the meaning of Jesus Christ for these very, very things. And death, more than anything, brings that into focus. This is what he said, and it's as though he's speaking to you and to me this morning. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, he's saying, my word is as God's word. That's the foundation. That's the foundation that gives you a serenity in the midst of a storm. He said, where I am, you will be also. John assured us, he says, beloved, we are God's children. It doesn't appear what we shall be, but we know that we shall be like him. That is a closeness. That is an intimacy. That is an assurance. That helps us to understand these words. God so loved the world, he gave his one, his only son. No one has greater authority than Jesus this morning to reveal to you the meaning of Christmas and to say to your hearts, 
Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Where I am, you will be also. For I am the way and the truth and the life. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. I do wish you a Merry Christmas. Maybe it will be a little merrier because we will draw near through Jesus to the joy that is ours in Christ. I'm going to pray for us. If you would like to come and pray with me or pastoral staff, elders, deacons, their wives, if they're here this morning, we invite you to come to pray about anything, to intercede for someone else, to pray for yourself. Maybe to say, I want the word to be my Lord and Savior, to invite Jesus Christ to be your Savior this morning. If so, we invite you to come. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. What a incomparable gift. Thank you for your Spirit, your presence in our lives, your power of new life, beautiful life, life with you that is so close. We praise and thank you for this gift of life, of new birth. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Merry Christmas.